Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. Today, what I want to talk about is going to be much more focused in the direction of Christianity specifically. But of course, that doesn't mean that I want only Christians to be listening to this one. I hope it provides some perspective and education for the rest. And as per the norm, I'm not really going to be going with an agreed upon definition of terms or um, something that has been talked about a great deal in exactly the same terms and things like books or sermons. What I'm talking about today is the fear of God. What does it really mean to fear God? If we take it in the modern day terminology, what fear means in general is simply the idea of being afraid. Now, I think that that does provide some degree of illumination on what the fear of God actually means, but it doesn't really capture the whole idea at all. The idea, of course, of being, say, pursued by a bear or a lion and running away from them. If that's the idea that is conveyed when one speaks of the fear of God, that is certainly quite wrong. But there's something a great deal, there is something very like being afraid that I think can apply. You could imagine, for example, being very intimidated by a person of great power. If you were, for example, to meet Elon Musk or meet a king, the past probably provides a better example than any in kingdoms that were essentially a monarchy. And the king, more or less, held all the power. That, too, I don't think really captures the idea of what the fear of Lord means. So let's start going into some particular studies. For me, when it comes to a term, terms like wisdom or good or others that I've talked about already in the podcast, what I tend to go to first to try to provide illumination is real-life examples of the same sort of thing. In what relationships in this, in this instance would I find a sort of fear to be present? And not in an unhealthy relationship, but in a healthy relationship. Because, of course, if the fear of God is part of the general relationship with God then that is also to be seen and shown in the life of Christ. What would, it, what would it have meant for the apostles, for the disciples, to have a sort of fear in their relationship with Jesus? And I think this starts to provide a great deal of, of illumination on this point fairly quickly. If you can imagine a healthy and good relationship, but... With one particular difference, you see the other person in the relationship as a superior in some way, which was very clearly the case when it came to Jesus. The apostles saw Jesus as their rabbi. And if you understand the rabbinical traditions of Jewish of the times in um, those times in Israel, I think it's still a tradition today in Israel, but you know, very much at that time. If you came as a student or came into the tutelage of a rabbi, if you were a student of a rabbi, then they were certainly your master. They were, and this, by the way, was considered to be the highest level of education among the Jews. So yes, if you were under a rabbi, he was your master. 
You uh, listened to him, you obeyed him, you followed him. Come follow me, as Jesus said. But at the same time, especially towards the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, he called his apostles his friends. So in other words, it was a personal and chosen relationship of the ex free exchange of things of value. And he was also pointing out if, if Jesus saw friendship the same way I see friendship, he would have been telling the apostles that they were giving him things that he truly valued. And if he was, in fact, God incarnate, then it's quite an incredible thing to imagine. But in the framework of that relationship, the relationship between his apostles and himself, what were the apostles' perspective of Jesus and why would they have feared him? So they... I think, especially for some of them, such as Peter, got the impression, not necessarily that he was God incarnate, but that he was the prophesied Messiah. And whether or not this was, you know, believed to be God incarnate, he was definitely meant to be an extremely important person in the lineage of Jacob, essentially, at the beginning, and David, and so on, which was already prophesied. So he was a very important person, and yet at the same time, they, believing this, at very least, were in a personal relationship with him, which again, he solidified, especially towards the end when he called them friends. So for them, their perspective of Jesus was that he knew what he was talking about, he knew what he was doing, and of course, throughout the course of their time together, while they certainly were thrown for a number of loops, Overall, they did not give up that faith. Now, why would it be? What would be part of the what would be among the factors for why they would have that sort of loyalty, that sort of steadfastness? And to me, fear is one of those factors. See, for example, if they only loved and were affectionate towards Jesus, but they did not really think that he was anything more than just a rabbi, if he was just a dude, if he wasn't, you know, any kind of special beyond what was already fairly special in their times, a rabbi, then they could have fairly easily doubted him. They could have fairly easily been skeptical. They could have heard about the teachings of other rabbis or synagogues or what have you, the Pharisees, and begun to doubt Jesus. They could have been, again, skeptical and critical, and critiqued Jesus instead of just taking him at face value. But if they really did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, again, at very least, then even if what he said seemed to their ears to be ridiculous, and don't get me wrong, there was plenty of that to go around. Just look at how offended the Pharisees became by a lot of his sayings, and that didn't even necessarily include when he called himself by messianic titles like the Son of Man. So he certainly said some things that were very confusing, but overall, while the disciples and the apostles did have some questions for sure, particularly the twelve just took it at face value. They listened, and they walked with that. They followed through on that. 
I don't see that kind of a loyalty. I don't see that kind of a quick uptake really happening. Because again, you have to consider the fact that Jesus was also saying things that went directly against some of their most, or at least seemingly directly against, some of their most respected other rabbis. Ones that were fully educated in the Jewish tradition. Which, because Jesus had a poor upbringing, he most likely only got had gotten the basics as a child. But... That's not really recorded, it's just an educated guess. Anyway, so they essentially took his side, they listened to him, they believed him, even when he said things that seemed really off the wall. And why would they do that if only affection and love were present? No, 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 I think it was a sort of healthy respect. What they were really acknowledging was that Jesus was their superior. He knew more than them. He was wiser than them. He knew what he was doing better than they did. And of course, certainly once things started occurring like healings and the stopping of storms in the middle of uh, the Sea of Galilee, yeah, they probably started having a healthy degree of respect for the authority that he carried. Now, coming to the level of modern day, where we don't necessarily have miracle workers walking around and, you know, the highest authority figures that most of us may encounter are policemen, perhaps, or some, some government official. I think that fear isn't well understood if you try to put it through the lens of those kinds of relationships, but rather... Personal relationships with people, friendships, even romances, where the other person, at least in your perspective, does hold a great deal of something, something truly superior and acknowledged as superior to you. And you, therefore, acknowledging that they know more of what they are doing or what they are talking about or what their opinions are in this particular area you will choose to take their side even if it sounds ridiculous to you in the moment. Why? Because, again, you have acknowledged them as being better than you in this particular area. Now, of course, again, the um, example breaks down when you consider the fact that if we're talking about the fear of God, well, he's superior in every way. But we also have in the scriptures advice against the fear of man. So what could that mean? The example that I just gave, I don't think fits into that category. If you acknowledge somebody else as your superior, and I think it is important as far as at least providing a good analogy is concerned, somebody that you are personally close to also, that I do not think involves the fear of man. I think the fear of man is far better exemplified by very recent history. For those of you who are listening much later than this, we're currently in 2023, only three years after the pandemic of the coronavirus. During the coronavirus, it's becoming increasingly known now in 23 and probably will continue to do so for anybody who cares to pay a good deal of attention to these matters. What is, becoming, what is coming to be revealed is that just about everything that the 
so-called authority figures, the mainstream media, and so on, told us through the course of the pandemic was absolute hogwash. The masks that they asked people to wear didn't really do anything. The vaccines, while not entirely unhelpful, were not nearly as helpful as they, were, as they reported they would be and have had some pretty serious side effects. The stay-at-home orders, the lockdowns, as they're fairly well known, are being shown not only to have not done really anything to prevent the virus, but they caused detrimental effects to society. And even still in current day, they're trying to continue to grift off of this and force people to do their will, to do their bidding, because, ooh, scary coronavirus, which had a death rate lower, if I'm not mistaken, than the common flu. But anyways, a lot of these facts and data points are still hotly debated by some. But the point that I'm getting to here is that for a little while there, particularly in 2020, so many people took the, quote, science and medical uh, physicians um, and the reports of the mainstream media and the propaganda of government figures with a great deal of seriousness, and a lot of them have deeply paid for it. And they have paid for it not just in many cases with their health, but with their society, with their friendships. Because a lot of people, myself included, were very skeptical of these things. We already had a fairly deep lack of trust for authority figures in the media and so on. And those friendships where on the one side you had the people just buying hook, line, and sink or whatever the media was saying and so on. And those who were skeptical, there was a great chasm created between those people and among many groups the consequences have been fairly dire. And there is an increasing consensus that, especially since then, that pretty much anything that the authority figures, that the mainstream media, that the quote scientists say, is uh, at very least worth questioning and doubting and being skeptical about. But on the side of those who bought it hook, line, and sinker, who wore the face diapers, who stayed at home as much as possible, who stood and trembled in fear, did all of that based on what? The idea that the politicians, the mainstream media, and the, quote, physicians, and, I mean, they do have those qualifications, but after what has happened, I have my doubts about their actual qualifications. Anyways... They did it because they believed that these people actually do what they were talking about. They were at least believing that these people were their true superiors. That they should listen to them. That they should obey them even if what they were saying didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Like wear this piece of thin cloth over your mouth and nose. And they just did it. They just did it without question. They did it without hesitation. And not only that, but they made life much harder for people who didn't bother to do these things. And to be clear, very seldom were any of these actual hard laws. Given the, especially in America, the, the process of the creation of laws, 
that couldn't be followed. Most of it fell to the states, and the states didn't make them laws either because they also didn't really have the authority to do this. So the fact of the matter is many people who refused to fall in line with this stuff weren't even weren't even committing crimes. Now they were actually they were often treated that way, particularly in places like California, but technically speaking they were not committing crimes. Now of course if a business wanted to kick them out, they did have the right to do that as far as I understand the case, but that's up to each individual business and many went for the opposite way. Anyways, what I'm arguing is that those who went along with the narrative were committing the fear of man. They absolutely believed that these people were their superiors, that they knew what they were talking about, they were right in all of their actions, and they should not be doubted whatsoever. If that is an example of the fear of man, then I think we are further illuminated on what the fear of God actually looks like. To me, they are one and the same. It is exactly the same behavior. But again, with this important difference, as I mentioned earlier, the fear of God includes relationship. But I think that there are stages. So let's go through that for a moment. When you begin to be a worshiper of God, become a Christian. The fear of God may start out much closer to the idea of being afraid, the idea of a uh, old kingdom or an older world king during, say, the medieval times. Right? It's a little bit more like that. You want to not go against God, not necessarily because you love Him and you know that He loves you, but because to go against him, there might be great consequences, just like if you went against a king, particularly within his jurisdiction, where he could notice you doing it. Of course, with God, that's essentially everywhere. Maybe you try to follow the ways and laws of God because you're afraid of da the damnation of hell, so you don't want to do it. Now, personally, I think that that's a decent way to start out with the fear of God, but it is not certainly the end point. Being afraid certainly does not include closeness, but we have plenty of the Bible describing the fact that God wants us to be close. So how could the idea of being afraid in the, of God in the fear of God combine with that? You, you don't have a relationship with someone you're afraid of. You don't have a relationship with the tiger that's chasing you. You're trying to get away from that. So how does this advance? I think it begins to advance much more in like manner to the modern day. When you, are, when you know that you're around a cop. Again, I don't think this is the correct, out, the correct end point, but it starts getting a bit more like this. It's not necessarily that you fear him as somebody with this absolute sovereign power who's just going to have you killed or smite you upon any point that you do anything wrong, but you begin to see God a little bit more as a righteous punisher. So, again, kind of more like a cop, right? A cop is going to see that you are punished for committing a crime if he or she notices, but it's not going to end your life. It's not going to throw you immediately into hell you're just going to face some consequences for taking the wrong actions in his 
in his sight, which again, with God, is everywhere. But then as we reach the end point, I think we start to see why the scriptures say some of the things that they say about the fear of God. And there's two that immediately jump to mind. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. When you reach this kind of healthy respect for God, in the sense of a relationship where he also loves you, you love him, you're loyal to him, you acknowledge him as your superior and as having the right to tell you what is right and wrong, even if it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to you. Why would that create wisdom? Well, to me, that seems fairly simple. If you have aligned yourself with him and if you are willing to listen to him because, again, you acknowledge the things that I've already said all before a few times, but in addition, just the simple acknowledgement that he's God, that he is creator of the universe, he's creator of everything, he clearly understands the difference between right and wrong and all the rest of it because he made it all, because he designed it. He knows full darn well what it all is about. If you give him that respect and you respect that and his power and so on and so forth, then of course you're going to gain wisdom. Provided, of course, that he is who he says he is, given that logic, you cannot help. Even if you are not a person with a great deal of intellectual strength, you will grow wise. Of course you will grow wise. Because you listen to whatever he tells you. You listen to it religiously. You listen to it with open ears and a readiness to obey. You will live with wisdom. You will live in parallel with reality because you are beholden to the author of it. Of course. The other thing that the Bible says that really stands out to me, or well, stood out to me after a bit more study about the fear of God, is the fear of God is to hate evil. Now this, I think, comes to the full fruition or perhaps the maturing of what the fear of God really entails. Why would somebody who fears God hate evil? Part of it I just said when I was talking about the beginning of wisdom. But this, I think, takes a bit more of a focused approach. For us, aligning with God, being willing to listen to him, and take him as matter of fact, even if what he's saying at the moment seems a bit confusing or really confusing. What it is that we are truly doing is having loyalty at the deepest level. We are ready to walk behind him, in front of him if you were to ask, by his side. I don't think we're ever in front of, in front of him, but you get my point, kind of more in a real world circumstance. If he tells you to do, you will do. If he tells you to go, you will go. You are loyal to him. And if you are aligned with him in this way, and he tells you the difference between good and evil, he teaches you what it is, then because you are on his side, you are, of course, hating evil. As a matter of course. God is the opposite of all evil. He rejects evil. You reject evil. It is foundational loyalty. But again, it's not loyalty born out of being afraid. Though again, that may, uh, that may be partially the case at the beginning. It is loyalty born out of love. 
It is loyalty born out of love of someone you acknowledge as your superior. You're willing to listen to them because they, you know they have something that you do not. Going back to the everyday example in a romantic relationship, I think there is a very common fear of this same sort. If, it's the, if you're talking about the man, if he is willing to be humble and acknowledge the fact that in particular areas of probably nurturing, probably empathy, and I don't mean this as universals, but kind of the typical examples, stereotypes, if you will, on the whole, in general, women are going to have a definite and defined superiority to the man when it comes to matters of emotional sensing or um, what's the word? sensual perspectives of the world. And if you respect that, not just about this woman, but about kind of women in general, if you trust them also, if you consider this woman to be a woman of great character, so you know that she's not going to willingly, knowingly deceive you, then when she says something in one of those areas or indicates something in one of those areas where you know she has senses, she has sensitivities and fine-tuned instincts that you lack by comparison, you're going to listen to her. You're going to take for granted, essentially, that she knows what the heck she's talking about. And with men, one stereotypical example is that men tend to know more about things. It's a common adage that I've heard many times that men know about, men care about things, women care about people. Well, if men are very curious and intrigued and passionate about stuff, things, ideas, in my case, philosophy, etc., etc., machines, then if she is willing to humble herself and acknowledge that he knows what the heck he's talking about, when he's talking about maybe cars, when he's talking about metaphysics or something like that, especially if it is actually important in the moment, then she's going to take for granted he knows what the heck he's talking about unquestioningly without skepticism. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that in either of these examples, the man to the woman or the woman to the man, that they're not ever wrong. They may very well be wrong. However, the fear, and I think this is the proper way to go about these things, the fear of the other person in that particular area of superiority is part of the love because it is loyalty because it shows that you are willing to be humble before the other in an area of their superiority and vice versa in fact for you to be willing to lead in that area where they acknowledge your superiority is part of your love towards them because you're willing to take up that mantle you're willing to go forward and say this is the way it is and they say yes and you follow with one another in loyalty and love. When it comes to God, he simply is always the superior. He's always the one who knows the knows more. He's always the one who knows where he's going. He's always the one deserving of the respect. But that does not mean that he is not also treating you with dignity, with respect, as regards your humanness. So I'm not really going to try to crystallize this into a, into a concise definition today. I would rather like you to ponder the things that I've been discussing and 
if you care about things like definitions, you can go go to that. But I think it has something to do with loyalty and submissive respect. Again, in areas that are appropriate to it. But if we're talking about the fear of God, it's simply universal. It doesn't mean we have no right to think for ourselves. It doesn't mean that we have no right to be skeptical in general. But if God says go and you have the fear of God, you go. Simple as that. So that's all I had on my mind today. I hope you all have found it interesting as usual. Have a good one.